it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Thursday, April 28th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. We appreciate you tuning in every weekday from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. The show is also available around the clock, on demand, for free every day after the program concludes. That's at GuyBensonShow.com, the podcast, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are loaded up today with a stellar lineup. Dana Perino is going to be here later on this hour. Looking forward to that conversation. She, of course, is co-host of America's Newsroom with Bill Hemmer. She's also co-host of The Five. She's going to be here with her thoughts on a number of political issues. Charles Payne will be here in the next hour, breaking down today's surprising, unexpected, terrible GDP number. With GDP growth shrinking last quarter, what does that mean? Is a recession inevitable? Charles Payne with his analysis coming up. KT McFarland will also join us on foreign policy, Afghanistan, Ukraine, China, and more in our middle hour. And in our final hour, U.S. Senator Bill Haggerty, a Republican from Tennessee, he was grilling the Attorney General just yesterday on Capitol Hill about the Hunter Biden investigation and whether or not it will remain apolitical, not politicized, and free of undue influence from the Biden administration. We will talk to Senator Haggerty about that issue and a few others as well. Well, as we come on the air here today, I have to admit that I am scratching my head when it comes to the Biden administration's messaging on COVID and the pandemic, and I'm not alone. In fact, you might be saying, Benson, what are you doing? Stop listening to them. None of it makes sense. It's all incoherent. It's all Calvin Ball, constantly changing senselessness. And that is, a lot of the time, how it feels, quite honestly. Where it's just capricious and not really responsive to actual science. And they can't really explain certain things But I guess it's just part of my job or part of my nature, maybe both, that I do pay attention to some of the things that they are saying about this pandemic and how it might affect our freedoms, the way that we live our lives. I'm attuned to these things because these pronouncements actually sometimes matter in terms of the things that they require. Like, for example, it is still active CDC guidance for toddlers and young children who are two years and older to have universal indoor masking at early care and education programs, regardless of vaccination status. It's crazy. The CDC put out their own data yesterday, we talked about it, that three out of four American children have contracted COVID, almost every single one of them in the country 
survived COVID, most of them fairly easily. Hospitalization rates were barely on the radar at all for Americans, you know, infants through age 18. Right? That age group had an extremely, extremely low hospitalization rate and an even lower, much lower death rate, which is microscopically small. As we've said before, a child in America is much more likely to die in a car accident than to die from COVID or even with COVID. A child in America is more likely to drown in a swimming pool or a lake. In a number of recent flu seasons, kids are more likely to die of the flu. And we don't uproot their entire lives. We don't close schools, as a lot of places did in this country for a year and a half. We don't slap masks on these kids for the flu every year, interfering with their development on multiple crucial levels and just fueling this epidemic of depression, kids falling behind, skills atrophying or not developing at the correct speed or level that they should be. And now here we have this data once again showing that, oh, surprise, actually three out of four kids in this country have had COVID. Most of them were just fine. There's a lot of natural immunity out there floating amongst even the people who are too young to get vaccines because unvaccinated kids are actually safer from this disease than a lot of fully vaccinated for vaccine boosted adults because that's the way the virus works. Thank God kids are protected by virtue of being kids from this disease with vanishingly rare exceptions. So you have the CDC putting out that information, and yet still their existing guidance, and we talked about this with Congresswoman Miller-Meeks, who's a doctor yesterday, the guidance from the CDC remains, if you're a young child, like age two to five, like the safest people in the world from COVID, if you're in that age group, CDC still recommends universal indoor masking when they're in schools or like pre-K programs. It's nuts. And it's the CDC putting out the data that disproves their own guidance. That's the type of incoherence that I'm talking about. Then it spills over into the various assertions and pronouncements of Dr. Anthony Fauci. So we gave the example yesterday where he, in the span of 24 hours, said that the pandemic was over and that America had moved past the sort of pandemic phase of this virus. And then the next day he gave another interview saying, well, no, the pandemic, of course, is not over. Then he had to give another interview sort of explaining how he could try to reconcile those two whiplash-inducing statements. And again, you can get into some of the nuance and say, oh, well, now that he frames it that way, I guess it doesn't seem like a total 180 the way it looked like in the headlines. The problem is... He's so undisciplined in the way that he talks that people don't believe what he's saying in many cases. So here's just a little example, the mashup. This is over the last 48 hours, cut 11. How close are we to the end of this pandemic? We are certainly right now in this country out of the pandemic phase. I want to clarify one thing, Jen. I probably should have said the acute component of the pandemic phase. And I think, and I, and that, I understand how that could lead to some misinterpretation. 
Is the pandemic still here? Absolutely. But we're past the acute pandemic phase. But kids, I guess, still should wear masks in preschool. And people, according to Fauci, should keep wearing their masks on airplanes. Right. He was just re-endorsing that a few days ago before he said the pandemic phase is over, before he said the pandemic acute phase is what he really meant. And the pandemic is still with us, but he's not going to condemn, for example, the White House Correspondents Dinner coming up this weekend. But he himself won't attend said dinner because he's 81 years old. Fine. There was an outbreak at another fancy schmancy like D.C. New York elite dinner. What was it, the gridiron dinner? Dozens of people got covid. None of them died. Seems like the pandemic sort of is over in that sense, but Fauci's not going to go, but President Biden is going to go, and they're both old, right? They've both had, I believe, four shots at this point. I think that's almost indisputable. So Jen Psaki's at the White House trying to explain all of this, and you, I mean, you really can't. She's giving it her best. So here she is explaining the Fauci side of it yesterday in Cut 12. Dr. Fauci said that he's not going to the White House Correspondents' Dinner, citing COVID concerns. Obviously, he's the president's chief medical advisor. Uh, as far as we know, the president is still planning to attend. Um, how, how should people understand Dr. Fauci's decision versus the president's decision? And is there any concern that the president would be seen as not following the science in some way? Well, first, I would note and respect everyone's privacy, including Dr. Fauci's, as much as he's very much a public figure. But as you all know, he can speak for himself and his decisions. And um, every individual will make their own decisions about whether they attend this event, other events, whether they wear a mask at it or not. Obviously, the White House Correspondents Association is requiring same-day testing. That's a, that's a decision they have made. Okay, so they're going to do same-day testing, and Fauci's not going. And Saki's like, well, this is really just about individual choices and decisions. Interesting. She just said last week that she and the president in the White House officially are disappointed in the judge's ruling lifting the transportation mask mandate. She thought that was disappointing and dangerous. And they're suing based on CDC guidance. The CDC came back and said, yep, we want to remask people, including those little two-year-olds on airplanes, and uh, let's appeal this decision. So the administration is suing in court to put masks back on people on airplanes. But it's just a personal choice. If you're a journalist and like a D.C. famous person, if you want to attend a giant fancy dinner in a ballroom packed with thousands of people, that's your choice, you see. Making your own decisions. Oh, but if you want to fly on an airplane, we want to force you to wear a mask, including your three-year-old who's traveling with you. It makes no sense. It makes no sense. I haven't had a good rant about this in a while, actually. Maybe because I just I do tend to look away and just live my life. But this has been a feature of their COVID guidance for years now. Doesn't make any sense. And when you ask them and call them out, it's just gibberish. Why should journalists who are adults have the free choice to attend a crowded dinner in a ballroom in Washington, D.C., where they're not installing a bunch of special air filters, by the way? That was a story this week. That's their choice. But if you want to bring your kid on an airplane and fly to go see grandparents or whatever, this administration, based on the CDC, 
recommendation is getting the DOJ to sue in court to force all of you to wear masks on the airplane, even though that will not be required at the correspondence dinner. What? Like, why? And then in that question that you just heard of, of Saki, I think it's a fair point as well. If Fauci, who's 81 and seems to be in very good health overall, if he's not going to go because he's too concerned about COVID and he's the chief medical advisor to Biden, in fact, Fauci says that he is the science, right? When they attack me, they're attacking science itself. And he's also the law in his own mind. We learned that last week. If that's the example Fauci is setting for whatever reasons, why is Biden, who's roughly the same age, what, 79, doesn't seem to be maybe in quite as good health in some ways? Why is he going into this packed room filled with people? That's a fair question. And then Saki tried to answer it. Cut 29. I would note that we also take additional precautions and steps. Uh, I would expect that he may wear a mask when he's not speaking. I'll wear a mask uh, when I'm at the dinner in all likelihood. And we also took steps, including the fact that he's not attending for the eating portion of the dinner. And he'll be there for the program, uh, which includes a number of speakers, the presentation of uh, scholarships, as you know, and of course, his speaking and his roasting where he will be on the menu, as he likes to say, when Trevor Noah is speaking. So, you know, just like anything, uh, it's a risk assessment and a decision he made on a personal basis. So he's making that risk assessment, the 79-year-old. But he wants to make sure that you are forced to wear a mask with your children on airplanes in a much safer environment, an airplane, when it comes to COVID because of the air filtration. And notice the games that are being played. Oh, in all likelihood, he'll be wearing a mask when he isn't speaking. And Saki says, I'll also, in all likelihood, be wearing a mask when not speaking. This doesn't sound like a firm commitment. It seems like they're going to try to mask up if they can. They know that there are going to be some images taken of Biden not necessarily masked, so she's hedging a little bit in advance. And then she's, oh, well, we're not going to be there for the dinner portion. We're just going to be there for the program portion, which lasts a long time. By the way, these dinners go on forever. It's like, oh, well, because he won't be there eating the rubber chicken, well, look look how responsible he's being on COVID. He'll still be in the room for hours. And it's fine. He's got four shots, 79 or not. It's totally reasonable for him to go and make the risk assessment. I know the vice president won't be there because she's got COVID. She's got four shots and then got COVID. Seems like she's doing fine, has no symptoms. They're giving her some medicine anyway, which is kind of weird. They said she has no symptoms, but they're giving her medicine. Whatever. Take care of the people who are running the country, even if they're running it terribly. I hope she recovers very quickly and continues to be asymptomatic. The standard should just be risk assessment for everyone. You do your thing. That should be especially true for children, but and, and the parents of children, children being at much, 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 much less risk than Joe Biden ever is, given the ages involved. And yet it seems like a lot of the restrictions are still focused on kids because they can't get vaccinated. I mean, it just it doesn't make any sense. And she's tap dancing up there at the podium explaining, well, Fauci isn't going to do this because that's his choice. But the president's going to do this, but he won't be at the dinner, but he will be at the other program and the part of the thing here. And we'll wear the mask probably most of the time when he's not. It's like it's just exhausting. None of it makes any sense. It's not science. None of that is science. Speaking of which, the transportation secretary in this administration, Pete Buttigieg, 
He was on with Brett Baer last night. He had a very interesting non-scientific thing to say, called out on some of this incoherence. We'll play you that audio when we come back. It's The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Listen to the all-new Brett Baer podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Baer favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. One more point on this COVID incoherence. Pete Buttigieg, the Transportation Secretary, was on special report with Brett Baer last night. Just listen to this. Cut 14. You just told me you're going to the White House Correspondents' Dinner. The president's going to the White House Correspondents' Dinner. You're not mandated to wear a mask there. But the administration at the same time is fighting a lawsuit to mandate people on planes, trains, and automobiles, or trains and buses to wear masks. So, like, if you're sitting at home, there's a disconnect here. Well, I think uh, most of us understand the difference between a hotel ballroom and an airplane. And uh, again, a lot of this is about what authorities the CDC has. So even if they don't think we need it at all, they'd still want to make sure that we get clarity in court on the legalities of it. But look, as a practical matter, and I know this is confusing, if you're getting on an airplane, it's your call. It's up to you. And I think the most important thing right now is that everybody's treated with respect. Those who choose to wear a mask and those who choose not to. Uh, Okay. What? So the most important thing is if you're getting on a plane, you're making that call. That's your choice. Okay, yes. You want to take the mask choice away from us. That's your administration's position. You're the transportation secretary, sir. It's also a choice to go to the fancy dinner. No one's forcing anyone to go to the White House Correspondents' Center. That's also a matter of personal choice. But I love the first thing that he says. It's like, well, it's sort of condescending. Well, Brett, I think we all understand, or most of us understand, the difference between a hotel ballroom and an airplane. Well, actually, yes, Pete, most of us do. And the science has shown that it's a hotel ballroom that is significantly less safe when it comes to the spread of COVID compared to an airplane. You are at a much lower risk on an airplane thanks to the air circulation and air filtration systems than you are in a room filled with people at a hotel somewhere. He was sort of suggesting the opposite is true. Maybe he doesn't know this. Maybe he was like, where was he for the last two years? I know he was on paternity leave there for a while. But this has been pretty well established. Look at the gridiron dinner and the dozens of cases that proliferated out of that event versus, to my knowledge, zero super spreaders from airplanes. You should know this, especially in the job that you were given, Transportation Secretary Buttigieg. It's the Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Moving right along. Quite a clip here on the Guy Benson Show already on this Thursday. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is growing big time. Thanks to all of you. We're very grateful. 
GuyBensonShow.com. With us now is Dana Perino, co-anchor of America's Newsroom, co-host of The Five, New York Times best-selling author, most recently, of Everything Will Be Okay, now available in paperback. Dana, welcome back to the show. Great to be here. I was down at the border this week, Sunday through Tuesday, and I happened to be down just about an hour from Eagle Pass when the news was breaking that that soldier, that Texas National Guardsman, his body had been found as he had jumped into the Rio Grande to save some drowning migrants who turned out to be drug smugglers. They survived. He did not. And that day, the White House, which had been mum on this whole situation, I still don't think we've heard from the president on it at all. They were asked about it, and Jen Psaki gave an answer. You guys played it on the five that evening. I was watching. I could see, and maybe I'm overreading this, but I could see in your face that you were not necessarily a fan of how this Q&A went. We'll just play it real quick here. Cut 23. Does the White House feel at all responsible, and what what more can you offer to people who, you know, are on the border, in border communities, who are experiencing loss and, and trials like this? Well, I, I, of course, we are mourning the, the loss of his life, and we are grateful for the work of every National Guardsman. I would note that the National Guard work for the states, and so he is an employee of the Texas, Texas National Guard, and his efforts and his operation were directed by there, not by the federal government. Uh, in this in this effort, in this apparatus, uh, we've, we've long stated that our immigration system is broken. There needs to be more done to invest in smarter security, to have a more effective asylum processing system. And we would welcome any efforts to uh, for for any elected officials to work with us on that. So, Danny, you got the perfunctory expression of sorrow and then a quick pivot to this was Texas that sent him there. And then a generic sort of boilerplate thing about solutions on a bipartisan level or something. What do you think of that answer? I thought it was terrible. And I imagine it's possible that in a future Jen Psaki memoir, she will write about it and say, whew, I really screwed up there. Because I can't imagine – well, look, I was very careful and cautious of everything that I've always said. And that was true at the podium. It was true when I was a little kid. Even when I was a child, if I ever heard my parents arguing, I would immediately go to, oh, he should have said this. Or if she wouldn't have just said that part, then they wouldn't be in an argument. And actually, if he had waited until – we got home and then said it and not instead of doing it at the store. I mean, I was always constantly thinking of how is this going to come across? So I internalize that. And then I take that to the white house now for better or worse. Right. Cause I think now knowing what I know today and having more experience in the public and in terms of broadcast, I would be a better press secretary. But I, I would also say this, like I, if I ever thought I would say something that would hurt someone's heart, or that would hurt the president of the United States or that he wouldn't be proud of me for something I, I was going to say, especially if I had some wonderful snarky answer that I thought of that would make my friends laugh on Twitter but wouldn't actually be very funny in the reality, then I just didn't say it. And you can just imagine that if you played the first part of that clip and it would just end it at, and we are grateful for all of the work of the National Guard, period. Stop talking. Why in the world would you go on to say, but it's not our fault? The only reason that the National Guard has been sent to the border is because the federal government isn't doing its job. Right. And I was just, I was really taken aback by it. I don't think it was intentional. 
However, every single one of us every day gets a million choices, and that includes what we say and don't say. And she is a skilled professional, and I just imagine she would love to have a do-over on that one. You know, Dana, you were talking about how this could reflect on her boss, the president. And again, I don't want to be too partisan or too nasty here, but I will point this out as I have before and just see what you think of it. President Biden ends all of his teleprompter addresses, like when he delivers a speech. He concludes with the line, may God protect our troops. And that's nice. This man, this specialist Evans, is one of those troops who selflessly hurled himself into a very dangerous situation to save the lives of people. He had no idea who they were. He didn't know that they were allegedly criminals. He went to save them, and he did so successfully. He gave up his life in the process. And Joe Biden always says, may God protect our troops. He also went flying out of the gates, what was it, last year, on the whipping stuff on the Border Patrol agents, that whole smear, which wasn't true at all. He came out, guns blazing on that. They're going to pay. This is horrifying. They're whipping these people. He had no problem getting in front of all the microphones on that. Here's someone who's died in the Texas National Guard trying to deal with a situation that has been caused and fueled by the failures of this president, and we have not heard a single word from the president himself, not even a statement that they put out. I wonder if Saki's sort of callous answer there actually is reflective of how the president is viewing this issue, i.e. callous lack of caring. Right. If, if your instinct is not to call the family as commander-in-chief and to be able to tell Jen Psaki, you could just let the press know that I did talk to the family. No details. don't need to know details. That you called would have mattered. Um, but that's not their instinct at all. But imagine, Guy, say Bishop Evans had seen those two struggling in the water you know, was looking at them thinking, mm, I don't really want to risk my life because who knows who they are. And those people had drowned and died. Do you think the White House would have made a comment? Absolutely. And so instead, what the White House could have done is say, we are so grateful for Bishop Evans. And we believe that his heroism and his quick thinking and his selflessness absolutely epitomizes the best of America. And we understand that's why so many people want to come here and we continue to work on blah, 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 go into your boilerplate, whatever. Yeah, I've been pretty dismayed about it, got to say. Why can't they just say that? I mean, do they feel like if if they don't blame Texas, if they don't take basically a shot at Greg Abbott, then they're sort of allowing this tragedy to maybe be put on them because they're failing so badly at the federal level. And so they have to make it political. And that's like their their ultimate instinct here i don't know how that's going to persuade anyone or move the needle i don't have they looked around and seen their approval ratings things are going terribly for them i just i don't understand why they continue to make some of these decisions that they do well imagine that you let's just take um a a situation for example in new hampshire that's going to be a place that will have a very tough senate race for example and the democrat maggie hassan she's all of a sudden for border security why well part it's partly it's because of all the drugs that are there The number of overdoses and deaths of young people in New Hampshire is outrageous. But imagine if President Biden were to take one of those cases and to say, this shall not stand. These drugs coming across the southern border are killing our young people. 
But in this current White House, you almost would imagine that they would blame the state government for not catching that drug before it crossed the border between Vermont and New Hampshire as it was trafficked through the southern border. Well, because it's a Republican governor, right, Sununu? So that would probably be the move, right? Check Check the name of the governor and whether there's a D or an R next to his name, and that's sort of how they proceed. Uh, I mean, it's it's really cynical, and it felt just like the opposite of compassion. And I I was horrified by it, and I will tell you the people, the men and women down there, I was actually doing the show that day from Base Camp Alpha in Del Rio, Texas. This was the Texas National Guard. This was the, the flag was at half-staff. They lost one of their own. And then that answer came across. They were furious, these people. I think they should be. They're very close to the tragedy. But I think even average Americans say, I I thought this was supposed to be the most empathetic president ever, especially when it comes to losing a young person. He has spoken very eloquently about that. He's experienced loss in his life in a very meaningful and sad way. Biden has. This is supposed to be one of his strengths, I thought. Yeah, well, you know, I think that there's a lot of things that we imagined, um, even to uh, change, you know, just to change the subject for a second. You know, he was the candidate in the campaign on the left who was saying, I don't think student loan debt forgiveness is a great idea, guys. Like, well, I don't think that's such a good idea. And now he's going to break a campaign promise and seek to cancel a bunch of student loan debt, which is, will be like the largest wealth transfer in history. But it's to take from some wealthy people and actually, I'm sorry, all taxpayers. And the wealth transfer is to the wealthy. Well, Dana, you've actually already built in my segue to my next topic, which was this. Nice. And so it's it's worked out beautifully here, Dana. Here's the thing. And I like to put my cards on the table because I don't want people playing gotcha with me. I do not have student loans. I never had student loans. I had grandparents on my mother's side who worked very hard. They were not super wealthy people, but they left enough money for me and for my brother Uh, to go to college, and that is something that I am forever grateful for. And my parents would actually make me go to the bursar's office and write the checks every time just to realize how much money it was and to be appreciative of that, and I always was. But I also graduated from college not burdened with that, and I understand a lot of people aren't in that boat, and I don't want to pretend like I'm speaking for them. However, there are a ton of people in this country, in fact, a majority of Americans, roughly 60%, don't go to college. Right, so right there, there's a pretty large majority who don't go to college at all. Then you've got another subset of the population who went to college and who paid off, worked for years in many cases, to pay off the loans that they agreed to pay off. They signed the contract dot, you know, on the dotted line, and then they were responsible citizens, and they made sacrifices in their lives. They didn't go on that vacation. They couldn't rent that apartment. They couldn't get that new car. Whatever it was, they did what they were obligated to do until the loans were paid off. And there's, I would say, one more subset here, Dana, which is people who, you know, let's say you're sitting there. You're a middle-class kid from the suburbs of Chicago, and you've been accepted to University of Chicago. You've been accepted to Northwestern. You've been accepted to Harvard. You're a smart kid. You've also been accepted to the University of Illinois, which is a good state school, not as prestigious, but they're willing to give you a full ride or close to one, and that allows your loans to be much, much lower. You make that decision rather than going to the prestige private school. You make that decision for yourself because you want to be responsible. All of these people that I just described, 
being responsible or not going to college, they're going to be the ones paying for people to have their loans forgiven who took out loans that they don't want to pay off. I don't want to pay off my mortgage. I'd love for it to go away. But I knew what I was getting into. I agreed to do it. I just am wondering, I know, Dana, it's sort of the the conventional wisdom here that the Democrats are going to do this and it's going to help them with young people. Are they underestimating the vastness of the backlash? Because there's a lot of fairness problems here if they move forward with something like this. Yeah, I think they'll lose entire generations of supporters. And, I mean, also imagine imagine that you are somebody in this position and you've got a medical, a, 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 doctor, a doctorate or a medical degree or even uh, became a lawyer. And I understand being saddled with this debt. And I actually think that if anyone cared really about this problem, they would ask these universities to pay this off. Their endowments are huge. I just was downstairs, downstairs in, my, in my apartment area. Um, I, was, I, I grabbed a sandwich, and here's a guy, works his tail off every day, gets minimum wage and tips. And he has to pay payroll taxes, right? Wouldn't you be mortified if you were a lawyer and you were complaining about your student loans, but you knew that this guy had to pitch in to help take care of you? That's just disgusting. And I think that there will be an amazing outcry. However, Guy, I do imagine that the media is not going to cover this very much. And it's once again going to be up to Fox News and the New York Post and the Wall Street Journal to get it out there. But it will get out there. It's sort of like the eviction moratorium. Remember when all these people, Mm -hmm. we felt bad for them because they didn't pay their rent. But then we find out that there's actually so many of them were not paying rent, but they were going on fancy vacations and posting themselves at big parties on Instagram or subletting the apartment and pocketing the money. That was an outrage, and the eviction moratorium became unpopular very quickly. Yeah, and this, I think, affects so many other people because, again, you've got people who have made sacrifices and been responsible to do the right thing. Those people all get totally hosed. The large majority of Americans who don't go to college, they're on the hook for this. Like, you've got working-class Americans, to your point, the guy making the sandwich, working-class Americans who didn't go to college, they're on the hook to pay for predominantly, like, middle-to-upper-middle-class disproportionately white people to sort of get a freebie for no good reason, which, of course, will only fuel the cost of college going up, up, up even further. It doesn't just, you know, not solve the problem. It makes the underlying problem even worse. And it's inflationary, big time. Like, what are they thinking here? What is the the mentality here? He ran against it, as you pointed out, because it's not realistic and it's not fair. It will trigger a backlash are, are they so blinkered and like focused on a tiny corner of twitter and like progressive politics that that they think this is maybe something that'll be a boon for them politically yes i do i, I mean that's the only explanation um and but once again you know it could be uh, blocked by the courts so they would go through all the political pain but get saved by the bell I mean, it really is a nonsensical position. But look, um, this is the position he's taking. And I also don't think it's fair just to blame the progressive left. I mean, I, I put this at the feet of Joe Biden. Yes. He's I mean, the president. He's, he's the one making the decision. He answered the question today at the press conference. It, it's not weekend at Bernie's. He's making these decisions and he needs to own them. Dana Perino is co-anchor of America's Newsroom from 9 to 11 Eastern Time on Fox News Channel. Then back every evening at 5 p.m. for The Five, also on FNC. 
She's got a string of best-selling books. Most recently, Everything Will Be Okay, available in paperback. Dana, always enjoy it. Talk to you soon on the TV and the radio and in person and all the good things. Okay, love you much. Thank you. Likewise. It's The Guy Benson Show, and we'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's the Guy Benson Show. We were just talking with Dana Perino about the student loans issue, the cancellation of forgiveness of the student loans. And Biden is, I guess, considering just waving a wand and trying to do that. And it occurred to us earlier that here at the show, the rest of the team, this actually affects them personally. So Dan, our engineer, he is on year 11 of paying off his student loans. Producer Christine, you you paid off your student loans, right? And it took you years to do it. I just finished last year. So, I mean, that's like your entire career up until almost 40. You were putting aside some of your money, every paycheck to pay off these loans. You did it like a responsible person. Would you be resentful if other people had theirs just sort of like magically poof eliminated thanks to taxpayers like you? No, this hot-headed Jersey Italian would be totally fine with it. (laughs) And then Wyatt chose not to go to college and he's got his career started here at the show and and he's a huge part of the show why it was part of that decision not to go to college because you didn't want to take on big loans you didn't feel like that was gonna be worth it to you yeah guy just didn't see the value in it and that's why it was one of the main reasons why i decided not to go and why you would be on the hook for a bunch of people's student loans you You decided not to go. You made that choice for yourself. Christine did the responsible thing. Dan actively doing the responsible thing. That all just sort of gets broomed off to the side if Biden does this. I mean, it is just the definition of unfair. Another hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up next. You don't want to miss it. Charles Payne. It's right ahead. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour on the Guy Benson Show. From D.C., thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free every day if you miss any of the show. For example, if you missed that Dana Perino interview last hour, she was on fire. En fuego, as they say. And that was a great interview, and it'll be available on that free podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. Heading to California tonight, doing the show from L.A. for a couple of days. Looking forward to that. As we move into our middle hour of three on the broadcast, here's a Fox News alert. The Dow rising substantially today, closing up 615 points to 33,917. Still to come on today's show, KT McFarland this hour, Senator Bill Haggerty of Tennessee in the next hour. And joining us now is Charles Payne, host of Making Money with Charles Payne, 2 p.m. Eastern on Fox Business Network at CV Payne, P-A-Y-N-E, on Twitter Charles, great to have you back here. It's great to be back. Thank you. I gave your Twitter handle. Are you stoked about this whole Elon Musk thing? 
Oh my goodness, I am so stoked. I really am. It's just I, and then all of these tears, all of the feign outrage, all of the people who are circling the wagons for democracy. Uh it's just really absolutely amazing. I love it. I love the you know, he's a guy that uh, I've I've always admired anyway. And uh, you know, it's it's I've seen the detractors come out no matter what. I mean, he naturally attracts haters anyway, but this is a whole different level. Charles, I want to ask you about this news that I woke up to today or just, you know, finally got on Twitter and I saw the GDP number come out. Maybe I just don't follow this as closely as you do. I was shocked. I mean, the number was so big last quarter. I know it fell, I think, short of some of the expectations, but it's still a big GDP growth number. We're bouncing back from the, the brief recession due to COVID. And then here we are in the last quarter and GDP shrank. It went down by 1.4% on an annualized basis. I was not expecting to see a number like that. What did the experts say about this? Were they expecting the economy to shrink? No one was expecting it to shrink, but the number has been coming down. Like I would say about a month ago, you still had some people who thought it could be as high as 3%. But then you started getting anecdotal things, uh, you know, uh, because almost every day some sort of economic data comes out from retail sales to housing sales, depending home sales to, you know, and then, of course, we know the different kind of economic headwinds we have of being inflation most and first and foremost. I thought it was interesting, though, that the experts uh, sort of played it off. And yeah, it's not a big deal, an adjustment in inventories. But it is a big deal. And what's really intriguing is these are the same experts who broke out the pom-poms with that big GDP number in the fourth quarter of last year. But that was 99% inventory rebuilding. And the reason it's important is now you have all of these businesses that got all this inventory, a lot of it, after Christmas, after the holidays. Uh, You got recession. You have people with less disposable income. They may be stuck with this stuff. You know, and then if they're stuck with it long enough, we may actually start to see them having to do discounts and other things they don't want to do. Ironically, what happened today enhances the idea that we're going to have recession sooner rather than later. Now, technically, a recession is is just um, two, two quarters, quarters in a right? row of yeah. negative growth, right? And so everyone was kind of saying, well, first quarter will be up, second quarter will be up, so there's no way we'll get recession this year. All the experts said it could happen in 2023. Now we're looking around saying, golly, maybe it could happen now, and no one was prepared for that. Charles, I saw some of the preemptive spin. Like, even before the number came out, it seems like there were people working the phones with their journalist friends, and then after the number uh, the number came out, it's like, okay, well, you know, this obviously isn't good, but these other underlying elements of the economy remain strong. So two points here. Number one, this would not be the way they were covering it if it were a Republican president, if it was Donald Trump or George Bush or any of them, Ronald Reagan all the way down. If it's someone that they don't like, they're not going to be making these kinds of excuses for them. If it's someone that they do like, they're much more willing to engage in the spin. I think that's undeniable. Second point that I want to ask you about, though, how much of the spin or how much of sort of the counterpoint that's being made here, how much of that is legitimate and true and fair, and how much of it, in your mind, is just spin covering up uh, bad news? 
Well, first and foremost, you're 100% right, uh, and CNBC is the worst. Like, so if you're trying to monitor your portfolio, it, you know, I mean, some of the jobs reports that came out more recently, we've never seen anything like this. And, of course, last year almost, I'd say of 12 months, we probably missed the number 10 times, and sometimes we missed it by, like, just – no one could even predict how poorly some of those numbers came in. But we have 11 million jobs open. People are working. You know, the consumption part is what people talked about in this, you know, looking for the silver lining. And it was good. But, again, this is for the last three months. We know what the way prices are going up. And we this is, by the way, also earnings season. So we're hearing from corporations as well that that consumption part is not going to be maintained. We know that already. So, so the problem is, uh, the, the main problem is you're pointing to that as a silver lining, but it won't be a silver lining in the current quarter, and we're still going to have inventory issues. So, uh, you know, yeah, they tried. You're right. It's, there's obvious that the White House started getting in touch with folks in the last 24 hours. They were prepared. President Biden used some of the same uh, talking points today. But all, but the the fact of the matter is, is those silver linings weren't that great. And on that point, again, as the non-expert, let me ask you, as the expert, with the Fed raising rates to try to deal with inflation, that often leads to recession, or certainly that's one of the concerns or dangers. People talk about the soft landing versus the hard landing. If you're going to have to keep raising rates, you might end up with a hard landing, and that landing hasn't happened yet, right? This this decrease in GDP, this 1.4% drop, that really doesn't have the the rate hikes baked into it yet. So that's another thing sort of looming out there. Is that right? You're 100% right. Um, you know, it's first of all, the, the Fed was going to have a hard time uh, engineering a so-called soft landing. Now, they've done it before. The last time was in 1994. But one of the unique aspects of this is um, – this is the first time they've ever gone into one of these rate hiking cycles with the economy slowing. Every time they've done it in the past, the economy was, was uh, going up. So it made it easier for this so-called soft landing where it wasn't an abrupt, you know, uh, the, the economy abruptly hitting the ground. And also, they're doing some other things they hadn't done before. They, they did this thing called quantitative easing. Essentially, they put a lot of money into the economy, trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. They, they they took a little bit out once before, but it, that was, like, very brief. And then they went back to quantitative easing. So they're going to be hiking rates, taking money out of the economy at the same time the economy is slowing down. It looks like a recipe for disaster. The Fed spoke last week, and it seemed to me that Powell and company are, are – um, that they know that they're going to hurt the economy and that now they're kind of changing their tune to, hey – if we do hurt it, it's not going to be a lot. In other words, work with us. There might be a slight recession, but we've got to tame inflation. Meanwhile, Charles, you mentioned Biden this morning. He gave some remarks. He answered some questions. It seems like he was trying to pivot pretty quickly. He said, I'm not worried about the recession. You always worried about it, but here's the deal. We're going to be fine. He gave some of the reasons that you already gave, and he's not debunking them, but you said it's not really the full picture. He then tried to move on to kind of like blaming Republicans and attacking the Republicans. Here's part of what he said. Cut 19. We're in a situation where, the, uh, you know, we have a very different view than uh, 
Senator Scott of Republicans uh, that want to raise taxes on the middle-class families and want to include half the small business owners in that. We, uh, so I think we're — what you're seeing is enormous growth in the country that was affected by everything from COVID and the COVID blockages that we occurred along the way. Now, we're, you always have to be uh, — take a look. And no, no one is predicting a recession now. They're predicting their — some are predicting there may be a recession in 2023. So he's sort of meandering there through different thoughts, Charles. But one of them was going after the Republicans. And look, uh, Rick Scott from Florida has this proposal. He's got 11 points. I agree with probably nine of them. Uh, one of them is to raise some taxes on some folks, and I think that's a bad plan. I disagree with it. Many Republicans have come out against it. Mitch McConnell says, dead on arrival, not happening. We're not going to raise taxes. It seems like Joe Biden is desperate to to talk about this one guy's plan that's never going to see the light of day. When we had Chuck Schumer, we played the clip yesterday, Chuck Schumer explicitly said yesterday that it's his view that the only way to get out of the inflation problem is to raise taxes. He said that. That's the leader of the Democratic-controlled Senate right now. And all of those Democrats in the House who voted for Build Back Better, they voted for a middle-class tax increase with tax breaks to, to rich people. I just can't imagine that saying the Republicans want to raise taxes, and that's the counterpoint to the economic problems, the inflation, I don't think it's going to work. But it also seems to sort of like economically illiterate on top of it. Well, you're right on all all counts. And the thing is, I watched that press conference as well, and it was a ham-fisted attempt. You know, he kind of glanced. He's glancing at notes. He's trying to figure it all out. They ram all the stuff into his head. Get out there and say it before it all before you forget it. Right. So every now and then it starts to trip over over itself. Uh, you know, it's unfortunate with Rick Scott. I'm really shocked to be quite frank with you that he would even set himself up to this degree and uh, yeah made it a convenient uh, scapegoat for President Biden to get out of answering tough questions of his own. And it's interesting too. You had mentioned the uh, Chuck Schumer thing because also today. He, he took not a, a shot at Chuck Schumer, but sort of someone uh, you know, on college uh, loan forgiveness. <laughs> yeah, my spokesman, Chuck Schumer. And, you know, in other words, like, listen, Chuck isn't speaking for the party. I, I speak for the party kind of thing. But we know you're right. Not only did they want to raise these taxes and they were going to forgive the blue states, it, you know, everything. I don't know what's going on, but they have become the party of the rich. And if they could get this built back better through the way they wanted to originally, you would have middle class tax hikes. But wealthy folks who live in these in these cities in New York, uh, and you know New Jersey, California, they were going to get breaks on their on their on, on of course the mortgages. They already get EV subsidies. They get solar panel subsidies. They're going to wipe out all their college their debt. I just don't understand how this the Democratic Party has made the full. Evolution, it's morphed completely into we are going to make sure that we keep giving money to the people in our country who traditionally live the longest, make the most, and have the, have the best chance of living the American dream. And they keep trying to gussy it up, disguise it. Uh, you know, this is racial justice. Uh, it's nuts. The only thing crazier than Climate this is justice. algorithmic justice that yes. I heard yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> that was a new one, algorithmic <laughs> justice. What do we want? Algorithmic justice. When do we want it? Now. That That's quite a chant there from Ed Markey. No, but you're right, Charles, and I think there will be books written about this, the evolution of the Democratic Party into becoming the party of the rich and the very poor, and the Republicans are basically everyone else in between, 
And I think that's probably a place where the Republicans don't mind being. And the Democrats are just going to keep saying, well, they're the party of the rich until, like, I guess the the talking point just doesn't attach anymore because for the reasons that you just laid out, uh, it's not really accurate at this point. Charles Payne is host of Making Money with Charles Payne. He is the uh, the host of the program, of course. 2 p.m. Eastern every weekday on Fox Business Network. He's on the newly muscified Twitter, at CV Payne. Charles, we always appreciate it. Thank you very much for your time. We'll talk soon. I appreciate it, buddy. Absolutely. Charles Payne here on that number. Again, it was a shocking number to me, and I think a lot of people are bracing to see what happens next quarter. We've got you covered on The Guy Benson Show, back after this. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. Some interesting sound from some hearings on Capitol Hill this week, including this exchange. This is going to be Hakeem Jeffries, who's a Democratic congressman from New York. He's the caucus chairman of the House Democrats, so he's a member of the leadership. And he was asking questions of Mark Pauletta, who's a lawyer and was general counsel at the Office of Management and Budget under the previous administration. And the subject matter was Clarence Thomas the Supreme Court Justice, and the hatred for him on the left. Congressman Jeffries took exception to something that Pauletta said, asked him about it. Pauletta responds, and, well, I'll let you decide who got the better of this. Cut 30. Many on the left hate Justice Thomas because he is a black conservative, was never bowed to those who demand that he must think a certain way because of the color of his skin. What evidence do you have to support that uh, incendiary charge? Uh, When Chairman... Uh, Benny Thompson calls him an Uncle Tom because of his views on voter ID and affirmative action, when in fact more black Americans support voter ID and uh, in, with respect to affirmative action in college education, they're 62 percent opposed to it. So, so that is the most vile, disgusting thing you can say. And, and, and so, yes, yeah, recla- that's, 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 re- re- that's the evidence I just gave you. Reclaiming my time. Yes. There are a lot of vile, disgusting things that can Will be you just ask me for an example? The, the notion that that is, right? When some members on this side of the aisle and others have been called the N-word throughout different points of our life, belies uh, the point that you have a particular bias. Uh, And it's an overstatement, which is not surprising when you look at the balance of your testimony. And if Chairman Benny Thompson uh, has an observation to make, uh, he's entitled to free speech. You apparently believe that Jenny Thomas, regardless of how many conflicts uh, she has, is entitled to her own political opinions uh, as well. Uh, Can I give you another example? No. So he's like, well, you said the left hates Clarence Thomas because he's a black man who thinks independently and is conservative. How can you justify that? Give us an example. So he immediately gives an example from the chairman of that committee, Benny Thompson, a Democrat, calling Clarence Thomas an Uncle Tom. And then Jeffries jumps in, interrupts him and says all these things. It's like, well, he has free speech. He's entitled to his own opinion. I mean, that's not a counterpoint. Of course, He's entitled to his opinion. It's still an example of the phenomenon that Paletta was talking about that Jeffries wanted to sort of pretend didn't exist. Then the witness is like, can I give you another example? Jeffries, no. Amazing. Meanwhile, in the Senate, Senator Kennedy, John Kennedy of Louisiana, was asking questions of a Biden nominee to a district court. This woman would be the first ever Muslim woman to serve as a federal judge. Her name is Nusrat Chowdhury. 
Kennedy asked her about something that she had said in her past at the ACLU. Cut 25. Do you believe that cops kill unarmed black men in America every single day? You said it at Princeton. Senator, I said it in my role as an advocate. Oh, okay. You didn't mean it. Senator, I said it in my role as an advocate to make a rhetorical point. So, so when you say something that's, that's incorrect, it's okay to excuse it by saying, oh, I was being an advocate? What do you believe? Do you personally believe that cops kill unarmed black men every single day in America? Senator, I believe law enforcement have an important and challenging job in this country. That's not what you uh, said, though, she's just, she's just deflecting away. So she said at the ACLU that cops kill unarmed black men in America every day, which is not true. And when called on it in these confirmation hearings, she's like, oh, I was just making a rhetorical point as an advocate. I wonder if that's a satisfactory answer to many of you. We will take a break. We'll come right back. KT McFarland on foreign policy upcoming. It is The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here on The Guy Benson Show, halfway through the Thursday edition of the program. Thank you so much for listening every day. GuyBensonShow.com, that's our website. Podcast is free of charge. It is on demand. GuyBensonShow.com. KT McFarland is back, former Trump Deputy National Security Advisor. She has served under four presidents. Author of the book Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People. KT, great to have you back here, as always. It's always a pleasure to be with you, too, Guy. You know, before we get to... Ukraine and Russia, I do want to pause and get your reaction to something involving Afghanistan. I know it's not a topic that's maybe top of mind for a lot of Americans every day. I think it probably should be, given the fact that we have left tens of thousands of our allies behind, broke that solemn word to them. We also left something else behind, a lot of something else's, I should say. The Pentagon putting out a report yesterday indicating that they've sort of gone through their logistics list and they are guessing that approximately $7 billion of U.S. military equipment was left in Afghanistan over the course of this hasty, chaotic withdrawal. $7 billion. And, of course, all of that basically has fallen into the hands of the Taliban or the friends of the Taliban. It is just dreadful and inexcusable. And I just want to remind you that the president himself promised repeatedly leading up to last July and August that the withdrawal, the exit from Afghanistan would be orderly, it'd be done responsibly, it'd be done safely. And then, of course, we saw what we saw. There's the human component of it and there's the military equipment component of it. And we've had that sort of quantified by the Pentagon this week. I just want to get your reflection on that. Well, a couple of things. That number, the $7 billion, that's not really a real number. Why didn't you double it or triple it? Because that doesn't count the facilities that we built that we left behind. For example, Bagram Air Base, which is one of the most, one of the largest and most sophisticated air bases anywhere in the region. Now, can you put a dollar amount on that? Could we put that on the back of an airplane and taken it away? No, but we didn't have to turn it over to the Taliban, who have promptly given the Chinese access to it. So it's a much bigger number than that. But the other thing is we're going to look back in history, and Afghanistan was a turning point. 
We're going to look back at that and say that was the pivotal moment that the world thought America was in inevitable and permanent decline because not only the shambolic withdrawal, but the confusion around it and a president who won't admit it. And so at that point, the Chinese president, the Russian president, the mullahs in Iran, the North Korean dictator, they all looked at the United States and said, wow, we thought they at least were organized. It looks like we, this is going to be a great opportunity for all of us to make our moves and to take advantage to what we see as a distracted and incompetent um, adversary. And if you go back and look, it was at that point that Putin's talked about taking Ukraine. It was at that point that the Chinese made very aggressive military moves on Taiwan and started building islands um, in the South China Sea, building up islands in the South China Sea and their military presence. It was at that point that the Iranians started um, exponentially speeding up their nuclear program. And it was at that point that the North Koreans started retesting nuclear weapons and missiles. So it's not just the dollars. It's not just the humanitarian disaster. It's not just abandoning allies. It was the point at which America looked like it was giving up its empire. Yeah, just a huge inflection point for the reasons that you just laid out. And you had, of course, the promises leading up to it from Biden saying we're going to get out, but we're going to do it in a way that's really responsible and will be honorable and we're going to be very safe. That, of course, all just disintegrated before our very eyes. He was also saying we're going to get every American out and every ally, Afghan ally that helped us along the way. We're going to get them all out. That's thousands, tens of thousands of people. That didn't happen. There were U.S. citizens left behind. There were many green card holders left behind. There were countless allies left behind. And you have all those broken promises. It all plays out before our very eyes on television, on social media. And then the president goes on television and brags that all of this was an extraordinary success. I mean, that cognitive dissonance, that degree of gaslighting, was extremely disconcerting, I think, to Americans and probably, to your point, provocative when it comes to people who wish us harm around the world. Yes? Absolutely. And there's even a third element because our allies looked at that and said, oh, my gosh, if the Americans couldn't even get that right, how are they ever going to come to our aid and how are they ever going to – Oh, they were furious. Right? A lot of the Europeans were yeah. furious because they did not know some of this was happening. Their people were caught flat-footed. Their people were put at risk. There was you know, a brutal session in the British parliament. There were EU leaders talking to journalists livid at the United States, not necessarily because the policy was being enacted. It's the way it was done so badly where we emboldened adversaries and shocked our allies. I mean, it's just a terrible combination. You know, Guy, if, if anybody would say, okay, what do you think of America? And they might like the freedoms. They might not like the freedoms. But the one thing the world agreed on, oh, those Americans, they're competent. They really know how to do logistics. They really know how to organize things. And what this showed the world is that, whoops, that's a paper tiger, that no, indeed, America and something as significant as that totally blew it. And to your point, the president of the United States, I guess maybe he doesn't know that we blew it. Maybe he honestly doesn't understand what how important the failure was. But when the president of the United States says, oh, no, it's great, terrific, everything's wonderful, nothing, nothing to see here. Extraordinary success. Along. Yeah, well, that's not how the world saw it. That's because it's not how reality happened. 
right? You can say whatever you want. You can put some words and hang it on something. Reality is what it is, and everyone could see what the reality was. Before we move to Ukraine, KT, something that you said a moment ago, I wrote it down. I want to come back to it about the United States, or at least the perception among some, that the United States is now in inexorable or, quote, permanent decline. Is that a perception that is wrong, or are we in permanent decline? Permanent is a very strong word. Well, it depends on what happens next. The Chinese certainly believe that the United States is in inevitable, irreversible decline, and they, China, are in inevitable rise, that within a few short years, China will not only replace the United States as the dominant economic, military, trade, technological, diplomatic part country in the world, but that they will be the only, the only superpower left. And at that point, all the other countries in the world will have to do what countries did 500 years ago, 1,500 years ago with China. They will all be subservient vassal states. That It sounds crazy to our ears, but that is actually how the Chinese look at it. Now, are we in permanent decline? Absolutely not. In fact, if you look at China and the troubles China's going to have in the next year, in the next 10 years. Oh, they're having right now, right? Huge problems oh, yeah. with COVID and locking down their cities and a lot of discontent, demographic problems, you know, fiscal problems. It's not all hunky-dory in Beijing and beyond. Clearly, and it's also not hunky-dory in Moscow. So that our two major adversaries, they're in big trouble, and they will be in more trouble as time goes on. The question is, what is the United States going to do? I mean, in, in the book that I wrote, one of the things that I concluded was, especially after leaving the country after the Mueller investigation and, and getting slapped around pretty hard over the Russia hoax, which now, of course, has been shown to be a complete hoax. They made yep. up the whole thing. Um, one of the things I, I realized was that the United States goes through these inflection points, as you call it, or this sort of revolution, political revolution. We do it about every 40 years. We have since the very founding of the nation. And and, and why does it happen? Well, the people in power, they want to stay in power. They don't do anything they can to stay in power, witness the Biden administration. However, the American people are constantly changing demographically, economically, how we make our living, where we live, what is the average age. I mean, we constantly are changing, not just because of immigration, but just that's who we are. That's in our DNA. And after about 40 years, the people get so disconnected from the government that the people say, OK, I've had enough. I'm going to get new people in here. We're going to go in a different direction. That's what happened in the American Revolution, the Jacksonian Democratic Revolution in the 1830s, after the Civil War, the Industrial Revolution at the turn of the 20th, 20th century, the Great Depression, um, the Reagan Revolution. And I think we're going through that period now. The question is, how do we come out of it? I think we've got enormous opportunities, starting with our with oil and natural gas. The United States scientists and engineers, they realized about 10 years ago that we could – they figured out how you could get oil and natural gas out of rocks. And it turns out we have the best rocks in the world that are so suitable for this. And so they began the fracking industry. The United States has the ability to give energy, oil and natural gas, to the world for 100 years. We can take advantage of that as we were starting to do in the, in the Trump administration. And then we can replace the Middle East as the dominant – superpower of energy. We can replace Russia as the dominant supplier of energy to Europe. There are a number of things we can do. We just have to have the will to do them. Yeah, survive and advance, to use a sports term, to sort of adapt, reset, succeed, 
I feel like a reset is probably in order here in a lot of ways in the United States. Briefly, KT, on Ukraine, I saw a Wall Street Journal piece today talking about all the aid that we're sending to Ukraine, and I'm all for it. It looks like Biden wants to send more, and that's great. The Ukrainians need it. I hope they beat the Russians. I've been very clear about that, no ambiguity about where we stand on this show. However, the journal piece says there's at least some concern back home about our own stockpiles being replenished in a timely manner because we're sending so much stuff to the Ukrainians with supply chain issues, etc. We might not have the stockpiles that we are comfortable having here because of those transfers. Is that a concern to you? Because to me, with all respect to Ukraine and all, you know, rooting interest with them, and I hope things continue to go as well as possible for them and we keep arming them, our number one priority in terms of defense has to be our own defense. And I just wonder if there's a balancing act here that we might be getting wrong. I think you're right to say that, but the cure is not to stop helping Ukraine. The cure is to fund the defense budget, and the Biden administration has cut the defense budget at a time when I think most of us would agree that we have mounting international strategic challenges. Katie McFarland, former Trump deputy national security advisor. Her book is Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People. She has served under four American presidents. Katie, always enjoy it. Let's have you again soon, please. Sounds like a date. Katie McFarland on The Guy Benson Show. We will be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Welcome back to the Guy Benson Show. It has been a nightmare week for the Democratic Party. And not just because of this terrible economic GDP number that was released today, but just on a granular level when it comes to the upcoming congressional elections. We all know, we've been talking about it now for months, that the Democrats are likely going to lose at least the House of Representatives and very well could lose the Senate as well. We'll see what happens in November. But... The big question has been it would take some earthquake for the Republicans not to win back control in the lower chamber. The debate among the analysts and the experts and the handicappers is how big will this wave be? How many seats will Republicans gain? What will the losses look like in terms of scope and pain for the Democratic Party? And one of the areas where the Democrats were pinning at least some hope was in the state of New York. Because New York Democrats had drawn an unbelievably aggressive gerrymandered map for their redistricting, where they were going to simply eliminate a whole handful of Republican districts. They'd be gone, and they would reduce Republicans to just the tiniest footprint possible in the state Senate and especially in the House of Representatives. And we had actually talked about this on the show a little bit because it was so brazen. Part of it was the hypocrisy, right? The Democrats and progressives in the media, they're always very, very concerned about gerrymandering when it's Republicans doing the gerrymandering. But when it's their own side being ruthless partisans, they're just not so offended by that. They're not going to really pay so much attention to that. Same thing with money in politics, right? Right-wing money in politics is a threat to democracy. Left-wing money in politics is helping democracy. It's, it's kind of that simple, that simplistic, but that's how they think. Because ultimately they're partisan beasts – like so many of the people on the other side who they think that they're just far superior to. I know we're just good government people. 
whereas those other folks are knuckle-draggers, ends justify the means, anti-democracy, you know, the whole litany. And New York was just sort of like front and center, exhibit A, with one of the most outrageous, aggressive gerrymanders I've ever seen to effectively, as best they can, wipe the Republicans off the map in the state of New York. And what was interesting about it was, and outrageous about it, as we pointed out, was just a few years ago, the Democrats all believed at the time that it was in their political interests to have a constitutional amendment in New York to take the process out of the partisan legislature and put it to this nonpartisan commission. And then this cycle, this time around for reapportionment, they said, oh, you know what? They're taking too long. We're not really thrilled with the direction that's going. We're going to do it ourselves because now we're in control of everything, right? The Democrats didn't have all the control back then. They were pushing the constitutional amendment. The people of New York agreed. And then what happened was things changed. Democrats are now in control, so they decided to flex the muscle, ignore the new amendment, the constitutional amendment that they had put through themselves and agitated for, because it was now in their interest to do it on a partisan basis, and they drew the map that they did. Well, this week, the New York Supreme Court, splitting four to three, although on substance it was five to two, all Democratic appointees threw out the map as not constitutional, based on the rules that the Democrats themselves had set up. So this huge advantage institutionally that the Democrats were trying to create to mitigate their losses and sort of help the party nationally just in New York by getting rid of Republican seats and adding Democratic seats, that has been tossed out by the New York Supreme Court. And so that is a catastrophic political result for the Democrats. A good result for democracy if they believe their own rhetoric, which obviously many of them do not, but credit is due to the Supreme Court in New York, again, all appointed by Democrats, Forgetting it right here, although it was so egregiously obvious what a violation it was, they couldn't ignore it. And Sean Trendy, who's an elections analyst, actually was cited in this decision. He's been on this show several times. He did some work here to help reverse this injustice. So that is a blow to the House Democrats who have already absorbed one blow after another. So that's good news. The outrageous map has been tossed by the top court in New York. Meanwhile, quickly in New Jersey, we told you about the nonpartisan commission and it involved Princeton University and that whole process for their redistricting. Well, someone at the top of that program through Princeton, who was widely criticized for favoring the Democrats, hiding the football from Republicans, and sort of making it not actually nonpartisan, even though that was the goal, That individual, Dr. Sam Wang, is now under investigation by Princeton University for data manipulation and abusing staff. The New Jersey Globe quoting someone is saying this about this guy who's at the top of this process, quote, he'd fudged the numbers to get his way. He had an agenda. He was good at hiding it when he had to, but it was clear Sam wanted Democrats to win and he was willing to cheat to make that happen, end quote. So big news out of New York and now a firestorm in New Jersey with that investigation at Princeton. And Republicans are saying that map needs to go based on these revelations. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up next. U.S. Senator Bill Haggerty of Tennessee joins us when we return.
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on this Thursday here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you so much for tuning in every weekday from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Plus, we've got bonus Benson on the weekends. GuyBensonShow.com is your one-stop shop for everything, including that free podcast, the whole show every single day, no charge. GuyBensonShow.com. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, the most popular alcoholic beverage in Finland for like 70 years has come to America. They are expanding some big news on that front later this hour, so please stay tuned. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can see where they're sold near you. Hint, hint. It's going to be a lot more places very soon. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21-plus only, please. Joining us now is U.S. Senator Bill Haggerty, a Republican from the great state of Tennessee. He was elected in 2020. Before that, he served as U.S. Ambassador to Japan, under President Trump. Senator, it's good to have you back here. It's great to be back with you, Guy. So I was watching with some interest the question and answer session that you held with the Attorney General regarding the President's son, Hunter. And I understand that generally it is a best practice in politics to keep a politician's family out of things. However, when there are some serious ethical questions, that are being raised, and when those ethical questions have been buried during a campaign and censored by many in the media, I think it becomes very much fair game. You seem very hot on this and quite curious about a number of different things. Let's just start with this. What are your big outstanding issues in your mind when it comes to Hunter Biden and the president? And then we can get into how you felt about that exchange with the attorney general. Well, I think we all know that Hunter Biden has some serious problems. In fact, he's under a criminal tax and money laundering investigation right now. But this is much more than Hunter Biden's problems and, and his, you know, the concerns about his illegal activity. This has to do with influence peddling at the highest level. This has to do with the president of the United States right now. And what we've had is a situation back in 2020 during the election where the story broke. Hunter Biden's laptop um, came, came to light, and the media, big tech, buried it. It was buried just in time for the 2020 election. Who knows what the outcome might have been if this story had been carried to its to its fullest extent. But, you know, the New York Post was silenced uh, occupying the White House. But we were concerned even then with the revelations coming out about the deals being struck in communist China, uh, the big guy getting 10 percent. And Tony Bobolinsky, who you recall, is the former business partner of Hunter Biden, talking about the fact that Joe Biden is the big guy. Uh, some of the things that have come out, I think, re- with respect to Burisma, the Ukrainian um, energy company that Hunter Biden was paid a million dollars a year to serve on that board uh, at the time that Joe Biden was vice president and calling off prosecutors in Ukraine. I mean, th- there was a tremendous amount of potential conflict there. And we've got a Justice Department right now that reports to Joe Biden that's overseeing this investigation. And I think the American people have every right to be concerned about the conflicts of interest that are here. So, Senator, what's interesting is this investigation of Hunter began, this is a criminal investigation by the Justice Department. It began during the Trump administration, but it was not politicized. And we know that because the existence of that investigation did not leak. 
even when the whole laptop scandal happened and you know Twitter was throttling it and Facebook was throttling it and the media was ignoring it and that whole episode if there ever were a time for a politicized justice department to whisper to someone at the Wall Street Journal or whatever by the way this guy's actually under federal investigation that might have blown the whole story wide open but Bill Barr's Justice Department kept a lid on it, which is ethically the right thing to do, by the way. The existence of that investigation came out after the election. I think it's still a significant development there. I think that's a credit to Bill Barr and the Trump administration that this did not leak for political reasons. But there is concern, and it seems like this is part of your concern, that now a Biden-led Justice Department with the big guy at the very top of this administration, might they have their political fingerprints on this probe, given the political sensitivity around it. That was part of what you were trying to get at with Merrick Garland in your questions, the attorney general. Were you satisfied with his answers about the lack of politicizing of this investigation now that Biden and his team are running the show? Yeah, I I think it's very concerning, Guy, when you see Joe Biden's top advisors coming on national television and his chief of staff saying that President Biden believes his son did nothing wrong. What kind of message is he trying to send to Attorney General Garland and the Department of Justice at that point? Well, the president himself has said it, right? The president himself has said his son did nothing wrong. He's the man who's the boss of the attorney general and the people doing the investigation into the son who the president is asserting publicly did nothing wrong. That boss of the boss is the president. There could be some sort of a ripple effect here, whether it's direct pressure or like fairly clearly telegraphed pressure. I think that is very much something that needs to be looked at. Precisely, Guy. I I couldn't agree with you more. But when I questioned Attorney General Garland on this, I could not get any straight answers from him. Uh, Deflection, trust me. uh, You know, we've got top people on this. Uh, You'll just have to trust us. When I asked what are the criteria, that you use to determine whether you're going to appoint a special counsel. No answer. Uh, This is gravely concerning, and you've got a Justice Department, particularly as you saw that discourse between myself and Attorney General Garland. He is deflecting and avoiding any sort of straight answer on what they ought to be doing, and he won't acknowledge the fact that there's a clear conflict of interest here. I think the deflections sometimes are even more concerning than a direct answer that may not be perfectly satisfying to you as a member of the opposition party, but at least they're sort of putting their cards on the table. When they're not, when they're hiding their cards like they're at a poker game, I think that sort of sets the imagination off and your mind sort of runs wild about what could be happening. I'm not really sure that serves their interests, being so cagey. Because maybe they're actually playing this by the book, but maybe they're not. And the fact that he was not forthcoming to me is a red flag. No, I, I think it's a red flag to everybody that saw that exchange, and I've had a lot of feedback since that point in time. Uh, people are very concerned about the way those questions were answered, uh, the fact that he could not be straightforward. If anything, the American public deserves a straightforward answer on this as much as any, anything else coming out of the Department of Justice right now. I think our, our confidence has been uh, shaken in so many of the, the offices of government since the Biden administration has taken over, and this is a place where they should be on their toes. And that was not what we saw in our exchange, uh, in my exchange with with Attorney General Merrick Garland the other day. Now, just a moment ago, we were both referencing that laptop story and how it was, in your word, correctly described in my view, buried by the press, buried by a bunch of other people, right? The intelligence officers or former intelligence community members 
where they stake their reputations on this being Russian disinformation, which it was not. That was a story concocted by the Biden administration, by the Democratic Party. They disseminated their talking points to all the relevant people who all fell in line. They weren't going to allow this to happen again, the Hillary emails thing. Even if it was a legitimate scandal for a Democrat, again, they learned their lesson. They had to beat Trump, so they did what they had to do in their own minds. That's exactly what they executed. And a big piece of it was big tech, as you said. Twitter suspending the account of the New York Post, the oldest newspaper in the country, for days on end, making it so you couldn't even send a direct message, a private message, including the link to the Post story, the key details of which have since been confirmed, finally, many, many months later, by the New York Times and the Washington Post and others. It was not ever Russian disinformation. Elon Musk, the billionaire, richest man in the world, of course, you've been keeping tabs on what's happening with him and Twitter. He tweeted the other day that that was terribly inappropriate, what Twitter did in that circumstance. That's really making a lot of people on the left quite nervous, including people inside the company at Twitter. I couldn't help but notice just, I think it was either yesterday or the day before, your colleague from Tennessee, Senator Blackburn, who we have here on the show regularly, she was out there on Twitter lobbying for Elon Musk maybe to relocate Twitter from San Francisco to Tennessee. There were some other lawmakers saying, no, come to Texas, come to Florida. I wonder what you think Elon Musk should do. Are you going to echo the sales pitch here from Senator Blackburn? I am totally on board with Senator Blackburn on this one. We would love to see them um, in Tennessee. I think we've seen so many companies move to Tennessee because it's a state of liberty and freedom. And uh, this is where Elon Musk wants to drive this business, this platform. Uh, Tennessee would be the perfect home. I want to shift gears, Senator Haggerty, and talk about the border. I was down at the border Sunday, Monday, Tuesday of this week. Broadcast the show from Del Rio on Monday. Broadcast from McAllen on Tuesday. Went out with the Texas National Guard, embedded with the Department of Public Safety. This is all on the state side because the feds, well, we know what's happening with the feds and how they're totally tied up and overwhelmed because of all these failures from the president. I knew all of this stuff in my head, like intellectually. We talk about it on the show a lot. Seeing it was a very different story. And one of the key distinctions that was interesting to me was the law enforcement side differentiating between people who are entering illegally who want to get caught and then surrender, get processed and released, which is just unsustainable and makes a mockery of our national sovereignty. That's a problem unto itself. But the law enforcement guys are much more concerned about dangerous people trafficking other human beings, drugs, you know, weapons and other things like that. The drugs piece is huge. And I know you've been speaking out on this. Governor Abbott wrote an op-ed at foxnews.com yesterday making the point that Texas is doing what it's doing, yes, for Texas, but also for the country, because he says, given the freedom of movement, once people get into the country illegally, every state effectively becomes a border state. Talk about the drugs component and what you're seeing in Tennessee and why you, as a Tennessee senator, are as concerned and as focused on the southern border as you are. Well, uh, I, I share Governor Abbott's concerns. He and I have been friends for, for many years. We were, we were schoolmates at one point together. Um, but I have the same concern that Tennessee has become a border state, that our towns have become border towns, too. And just three weeks before you were there, Guy, I led a delegation of sheriffs 
and mayors from Tennessee down to the same place where you were along the Rio Grande. We were in McAllen. We were, we were in Laredo on Saturday night. We were there for three days on the ground and saw the same thing that you did in terms of the, you know, the, the mass of, of illegal migration coming across the border, the human tragedy that's occurring there. I can't believe that we could get a single Democrat colleague to come from the United States Senate to see that, that they could stand by and watch that suffering go on. Every one of my Senate colleagues has got people dying in their own state just like we do in Tennessee from overdose deaths. And now the largest cause of deaths for people in America between the ages of 18 and 45 is drug overdose. That's the largest cause of death for people in that age range right now. And this is entirely due to the collapse of our southern border. And it's also due to the fact that the Chinese Communist Party has ramped up their partnership with the illicit drug cartels on the other side of that border. These are multi-billion dollar illegal conglomerates that control the entire northern side of the Mexican border. You saw that yourself there, Guy. They control everything that flows across. They deflect and they consume all of the capacity of our border patrol agents. And then they push the fentanyl-laden drugs across the border, and they're killing our kids in Tennessee. The sheriffs told their stories of what they're seeing. Every sheriff in Tennessee tells me that this month is worse than the month before it in terms of the number of overdoses and deaths. We're dealing with it every day in every small town in every county in America, and it's happening in my home state of Tennessee. Do you think Title 42 goes away as scheduled next month? I think they're going to have a very hard time with it. In fact, I actually have pushed to expand Title 42, and I've put forward legislation to keep it in place and expand it beyond the public health concerns that were initially created under the Trump administration to include concerns about drug overdoses and illegal smuggling that could lead to that. If any of those were concerns, that is another rationale to turn people back, which would be a reason to turn back everyone at that border. Of course, I haven't got a single Democrat to join me in that yet, but I'm still pushing. I think we're going to be able to keep Title 42 in place because Democrats in border states like Arizona are very nervous about whether they're going to get elected right now. Uh, you, you may see, surprisingly, more and more Democrats come on board to keep this in place. But we should go yeah, back I mean, to the migrant protection protocol. This, the Stay in Mexico program that President Trump put in place, that actually killed the incentive to come. That was the right way to do it. Yeah. I, look, I think if the Democrats come on board, in many cases, it's because they're worried about their own political hide, not based on the policy or the disaster that's unfolding. It's they're concerned about how soon this is happening in the proximity to an election where a lot of them are up for re-election and they're very nervous about that. Now, whether you get everything that you want into a bill or pass out of the Senate, who knows if Pelosi even takes it up in the House, the whole thing could die. And I know there's the big circle date, May 23rd at the White House. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how this is going to go down, but I know the people that I spoke to at the border for the last few days are absolutely petrified of what's going to happen if that change is implemented as scheduled. We'll see. Senator Bill Haggerty, Republican of Tennessee, here on The Guy Benson Show. Senator, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Guy. Great to be with you again. All the best. You bet. And The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour continues right after this. Guy Benson will be right back. Happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. We are back. Appreciate you tuning in. So something pretty cool happened yesterday on the Senate floor. Senator Tom Cotton, Republican of Arkansas, gave a speech, not that unusual, and he had a staffer sitting next to him, also not unusual. Typically, a senator will have a plan and will want to address some sort of issue, and often there's an aide or two sitting right next to him or her if they needed any assistance or whatever. That's a typical scene. What was atypical about this was Cotton was surprising 
that staffer by, without her knowledge, telling the country about something that she had achieved and an amazing heroic sacrifice that she personally has made in her life in recent months on behalf of the people that we left behind in Afghanistan. And I think the story of what this cotton aid did is inspiring. It also reminds us again about the travesty and the debacle in Afghanistan. And when someone decides to step up to the plate and try to succeed or at least help where the Biden administration or the U.S. government has failed and broken its word, I think that person or those people deserve a lot of credit. And Senator Cotton clearly agreed this was a lovely tribute that his colleague did not expect, his staffer did not expect, but it was well-deserved. Listen to Cut 26. I'd like to recognize one of our nation's heroes today. Navy Lieutenant Kristen Trindle is a member of my team in the Senate, where she does excellent work as my Deputy National Security Advisor. After starting six years ago as my intern, I know that Lieutenant Trindle would be too humble to sit beside me today if she had any idea about what I'm going to say. But last year, she took a leave of absence from her Senate duties to deploy with the Navy Reserves. That deployment took her to Kabul, the eye of the storm. Lieutenant Trindle served as aide-de-camp to the general in charge of the evacuation. Their mission? To save as many Americans and Afghan allies as possible from the advancing Taliban. And that is precisely what she did. She and her team, this was before the catastrophic withdrawal. And over the course of that time, when she took that leave of absence from the Senate and went with her brothers and sisters in arms to get that job done to the best of their ability, with one of their collective arms tied behind their back, they were able to save almost a 1,000 Americans and Afghan allies before we pulled out. Almost a 1,000. And that work, sadly, continues today. But hats off to Lieutenant Kristen Trindle for what she did. And that's a classy move of Cotton to spotlight her work and the work of those around her. Bravo. The Guy Benson Show continues next. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. As the happy hour continues here on the Guy Benson Show on this Thursday, let's go back to a conversation we had in our first hour today with our friend and colleague, Dana Perino, co-host of America's Newsroom, co-host of The Five. You know her. You love her. Here's part of my discussion with Dana. Jen Psaki gave an answer. You guys played it on The Five that evening. I was watching. I could see, and maybe I'm overreading this, but I could see in your face that you were not necessarily a fan of how this Q&A went. We'll just play it real quick here. Cut 23. Does the White House feel at all responsible? And what, what more can you offer to people who, you know, are on the border, in border communities, who are experiencing loss and, and trials like this? Well, I, I, of course, we are mourning the, the loss of his life, and we are grateful for the work of every National Guardsman. I would note that the National Guard work for the states, and so he is an employee of the Texas, Texas National Guard, and his efforts and his operation were directed by there, not by the federal government. Uh, in this in this effort, in this apparatus, uh, we've, we've long stated that our immigration system is broken. There needs to be more done to invest in smarter security, to have a more effective asylum processing system, and we would 
would welcome any efforts to uh, for for any elected officials to work with us on that. So, Danny, you got the perfunctory expression of sorrow and then a quick pivot to this was Texas that sent him there and then a generic sort of boilerplate thing about solutions on a bipartisan level or something. What do you think of that answer? I thought it was terrible. And I imagine it's possible that in a future Jen Psaki memoir, she will write about it and say, whew, I really screwed up there. Because I can't imagine – well, look, I was very careful and cautious of everything that I've always said. And that was true at the podium. It was true when I was a little kid. Even when I was a child, if I ever heard my parents arguing, I would immediately go to, oh, he should have said this. Or if she wouldn't have just said that part, then they wouldn't be in an argument. And actually, if he had waited until we got home and then said it and not instead of doing it at the store, I mean, I was always constantly thinking of how is this going to come across. So I internalize that, and then I take that to the White House. Now, for better or worse, right, because I think now – Knowing what I know today and having more experience in the public and in terms of broadcast, I would be a better press secretary. But I, I would also say this. Like I, if I ever thought I would say something that would hurt someone's heart or that would hurt the president of the United States or that he wouldn't be proud of me for something I, I was going to say, especially if I had some wonderful snarky answer that I thought of that would make my friends laugh on Twitter but wouldn't actually be very funny in the reality – but I just didn't say it. And you can just imagine that if you played the first part of that clip and it would just end it at, and we are grateful for all of the work of the National Guard, period. Stop talking. Why in the world would you go on to say, but it's not our fault? The only reason that the National Guard has been sent to the border is because the federal government isn't doing its job. Right. And I was just, I was really taken aback by it. I don't think it was intentional. However, every single one of us every day gets a million choices, and that includes what we say and don't say. And she is a skilled professional, and I just imagine she would love to have a do-over on that one. You know, Dana, you were talking about how this could reflect on her boss, the president. And, again, I don't want to be – too partisan or too nasty here, but I will point this out as I have before and just see what you think of it. President Biden ends all of his teleprompter addresses, like when he delivers a speech, he concludes with the line, may God protect our troops. And that's nice. This man, this specialist Evans, is one of those troops who selflessly hurled himself into a very dangerous situation to save the lives of People, he had no idea who they were. He didn't know that they were allegedly criminals. He went to save them, and he did so successfully. He gave up his life in the process. And Joe Biden always says, may God protect our troops. He also went flying out of the gates, what was it, last year, on the whipping stuff on the Border Patrol agents, that whole smear, which wasn't true at all. He came out, guns blazing on that. They're going to pay. This is horrifying. They're whipping these people. He had no problem getting in front of all the microphones on that. Here's someone who's died in the Texas National Guard trying to deal with a situation that has been caused and fueled by the failures of this president. And we have not heard a single word from the president himself, not even a statement that they put out. I wonder if Saki's sort of callous answer there actually is reflective of how the president is viewing this issue, i.e. callous lack of caring. Right. If, if your instinct is not to call the family 
as Commander-in-Chief. And to be able to tell Jen Psaki, you can just let the press know that I did talk to the family. No details. Don't need to know details. That you called would have mattered. Um, but that's not their instinct at all. But imagine, Guy, say Bishop Evans had seen those two struggling in the water. But, you know, was looking at them thinking, mm, I don't really want to risk my life because who knows who they are. And those people had drowned and died. Do you think the White House would have made a comment? Absolutely. And so instead, what the White House could have done is say, we are so grateful for Bishop Evans, and we believe that his heroism and his quick thinking and his selflessness absolutely epitomizes the best of America. And we understand that's why so many people want to come here and we continue to work on blah, 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 go into your boilerplate, whatever. Yeah, I've been pretty dismayed about it, got to say. My full interview with Dana Perino, plus the entire show, Start to finish, for free, on demand, you can go to GuyBensonShow.com. It pops up, becomes available shortly after the show, just after 6 p.m. Eastern Time, GuyBensonShow.com or FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, a party in the works. Producer Christine already angling for an invite, plus some cool news, and it's related about one of our sponsors that's straight ahead. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Thursday edition of the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. If you missed any of the program today, it's all there for free on demand on our podcast. GuyBensonShow.com. FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, give us a follow on social media, at Guy Benson Show. That's Twitter. That's the same handle on Instagram, at Guy Benson Show. Well, producer Christine and I had a very interesting phone call earlier today with one of our sponsors. In fact, the sponsor that brings us this happy hour every day and has now for, what, two years? The Finnish Long Drink, of which I'm a fan. I was a fan of it before... They even sponsored the show. My buddy introduced it to me, and I was like, this is just delicious. It is a citrus soda, effervescent, best served, ice cold, and then there's premium liquor in there. It's just delicious. It is the most popular alcoholic drink in Finland and has been for decades. And my buddy tasted it over there, loved it, and decided this has to come to the United States. So a few years ago, that's what he started to do. It's been growing. They've sponsored this final hour of the show, the happy hour, very generously for a couple years, and that partnership is still going strong here. And we hear from you guys all the time. And by the way, we're not being like paid anything extra to talk about this here. I'm just genuinely interested in it. I hope you are too. You guys send me DMs and tweets and all sorts of stuff on my personal social about when you're trying long drink and it's come to your state or you're going to order it or what have you, and the reviews are strong, as they should be. So we were on a phone call with one of the people over at the long drink just discussing some of these changes that are coming, this expansion that we've now been teasing for weeks. In fact, we told you about some of the new states where long drink had arrived, Tennessee, where our guest earlier this hour, Senator Haggerty, hails from. Wisconsin, Louisiana, Nebraska, Iowa. We told you about those. We got a preview of some of the other 
rollouts that are coming. We're allowed to tell you about two of them. Arkansas, if you're listening in Arkansas, please welcome the long drink to your state. It has arrived. And Idaho, a state that I visited for the first time last year, Idaho is now home to the long drink as well. Two new states tacked onto the map. Now, what we can't tell you is, let's see, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 more states that I have here on a list that are rolling out currently or next month. What I can say, and we will bring you those states, and many of you live in some of these places, we will tell you those as soon as we can. The bigger picture is by the end of next month, as you're like heading into Memorial Day weekend, Long Drink believes that they will be rolled out and available in more than 40 states, which is pretty exciting. And what's remarkable is they were telling us they are already number nine in the United States on the ready-to-drink spirit list, sort of in that category. So ready-to-drink spirits where there's you know a liquor and then a mix and you just you know pop the can. They're number nine in that category right now, and that's based on sales in just 17 states. So they weren't even at half of the states yet. By the end of next month, they'll be in the vast majority, 80% of states. So this growth has been remarkable for the long drink. And by the way, I can, like, ramble about it on this show all I want and plug it every day as we do. They sponsor the hour. If people tried it and didn't like it, then it wouldn't succeed. It's like, oh, well, that's a weird acquired taste, I guess. Maybe they love it over in Finland, but it, it doesn't quite fit my palate. That is what would happen if the quality of the product wasn't as good as it is, but it is. So people taste it. In fact, when we were just down at the border, one of the guys, one of the military guys, overheard me doing the show and talking about the long drink and the sponsorship. And we were in the car. He said, by the way, I love that stuff. It's been available in Texas for a while. It's one of those big 17 states that's been driving, at least up to this point, so much of the success. And so I love hearing from you. When you send me messages, send me photos, send me reviews, keep it coming. And this partnership that we have with The Long Drink is pretty fantastic. They've got a national advertising campaign that they've rolled out where the theme is just sort of like happiness. The brand is just happiness. And it's not a coincidence. It's not an accident. There's global polling data that has shown that per capita, the happiest country in the world, in terms of like happy lives, it's in Finland. They're number one. And their goal here is to just infuse America with similar Finnish long drink fueled happiness. And I think it's working. So we're grateful for them and bringing us the happy hour every day, I cannot wait. Like, I, I wish I could just tell you. I wish I could give you hints about what states are coming very, very soon. But we're going to keep that, you know, buttoned up until we are given the go-ahead. When we've got the green light, we will be sharing that far and wide. By the way, one other thing that we talked about on this call today, you might have started to see an imitator out there calling itself a long drink. It's owned by a big beverage company, and it's just an imposter. And a key difference is it's not even a long drink. It doesn't have premium liquor in it. 
has malt liquor in it. So it's basically just one of these seltzers, and they're slapping the words long drink on it because that's the term from Finland. It's not actually a Finnish long drink. So don't be fooled. And look, the long drink, the real long drink, our long drink, has the tall, narrow, white lettering, the blue and white cans. There's also the black can. It's very distinctive. This other one, you can tell it's not the real deal, and it's not. It's the Finnish long drink that sponsors this show. And one of their big celebrity backers and investors, he's about to do a whole advertising campaign in the coming months as well because he's going to be in a huge, likely-to-be box office smash hit movie. So they're going to line everything up with that. So stay tuned for more information. We will bring that all to you in the coming weeks. But one of the focuses is on Memorial Day weekend and the kickoff to the summer because, look, the long drink is good year-round. It is especially good out on the boat or out on the golf course when it's sunny out in hot weather, the cold long drink. And so I was inspired on the call. I think I'm going to do a Memorial Day barbecue at the house. We did one in the summer last year as well, which was sort of like coming out of COVID at the time. We don't really have Memorial Day weekend plans, so I was talking to Adam after the call before the show, and I think we're just going to go for it. We're going to figure out which day to do it. We'll send out invites to our friends here, and it looks like the long drink folks are probably going to sponsor it and send a bunch of product to the house, and we'll just put it on ice and put some burgers on the grill, maybe some beer for people who aren't liquor drinkers, but that's the game plan. And I could see producer Christine was like already trying to angle for an invite to the barbecue. And the problem, Christine, is do you recall when you were invited to this exact same party last year after demanding to be invited and then you were invited and you didn't show up? You were just a no-show? No, I don't think that happened. Quiet Wyatt, do you remember this whole thing? Uh, I do remember it, actually, yes. Okay, yes, thank you. And the problem, Christine, is we have literal receipts. We have audio that records the whole show. I don't know if you know this, but there's a podcast every day. It's all recorded. It's all archived. So we could play it right what, back for you. What's happening down there? What, what is Wyatt, like CVS, just reads me my receipts? Well, no, it's like it's in the system at Fox. It's You can go back in the archive on the podcast and listen. You wanted the invite. In fact, do you not recall Jello shots? You were promising Jello shots if you got invited. We invited you, and then there's just like no cookie. You never showed up at all. So why should we invite you this year if you might just snub us again? Um, I, I think there was a reason. If 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 what you and Wyatt are saying <laughs> is true, it is true. I think there was a there must have been a reason. There, I must have been doing something that mm. weekend that I wasn't able to attend, but. Um, I know my husband is actually going away for a work trip that weekend, so I am definitely open. Well, what but, about your daughter? You're, you're a mother, Christina. Right. Well, like, that's what I was going to say. Um, I mean, Megan's a fun time, too. She's not going to drink. Not yet. But I think we should be – her and I should be able to go. Yeah. Or, or maybe Judgy Joyce could – Oh, you, do, you don't – no. No. No, 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 no. no? Is that a separate question? Should we talk about that another day? Yeah, I've already talked to Roy about that this morning. We don't need to go there. Roy being your new therapist. Yes. Okay, let's explore that maybe in tomorrow's home stretch, but we're we're up on the break here. Well, we will consider whether to add you to this Evite for Memorial Day for the big long drink bash barbecue. And maybe you can talk a big game again and then it'll be like, you know, everyone on pins and needles, is Cookie gonna roll into this thing or not? 
I'm already trying to think about my outfit. I found these like red, white, and blue like flag shoes. I think that would look really, really cute. Oh, we had the we had the uh, ice pops. We had the popsicles last the year. Bomb the red, pops? white, and blue. Yeah, the the one that looks like the rocket. Yep, I love we had those. those. Yeah, I know. We had them at the party that's, last year that you didn't come to. That's the jello shot I was probably if if this was happening and it uh-huh. I was gonna do like a red, white, and blue jello shot. So you do remember clearly because there are details all coming back from the recesses of your memory and some of the grogginess probably from Mama's Juice. But you do remember that, which is actually kind of satisfying. All right. I will consult with Adam and we shall see uh, verdict to come soon. In the meantime, we are off to Los Angeles doing the show from L.A. tomorrow, Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday of next week. So a little West Coast action, left coast, to be honest. Looking forward to that. In the meantime, have a wonderful evening. Thank you for listening. It is The Guy Benson Show. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.